John chapter 13 this morning. And for this morning's reading, one verse. I promise there'll be more next Sunday. <laughs> We're not going to take one verse at a time going through chapter 13. But this morning we are. There is so much packed into this one verse that I want to sort of open up this morning if the Lord will allow. Uh, John 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour was come, that He should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved His own which were in the world, He loved them unto the end. I'm going to lay aside the statements concerning the Passover for uh, at least this time. We come back to it uh, in the next verses. And I want to pick up in this verse with the phrase, when Jesus knew that His hour was come. When Jesus knew that His hour was come. Now in our study of John, we've already seen uh, that the Lord Jesus Christ is both God and man. At the very same time, children, I know you have some trouble with that. Even we adults have some trouble with that. Okay, God and man at the very same time. As God, He's omniscient. Remember that big word? It means that He knows all things. Fully aware of all things. He knows all things. Including, including those things related to His death, His burial, His resurrection, and His ascension returned back to the Father. But as a man, He could say in Mark thirteen thirty two, But of that day and that hour knoweth no man. No, not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father. And so speaking of the last days, he says that as a son of man, he does not know what's going to be happening. So as fully man in every way, except regarding sin, he would be able to say, I don't know the future. Is there a man here that can say, I know what the future? No. As a man, we cannot say that. But as God, he's omniscient and knows all things. Uh, we see him expressing his omniscience in John 7, verse 6, where he says, my time is not yet come. We see him in John 12, in verse 23, saying, the hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. And now in chapter 13 and verse 1, where he says, the hour is come that I should depart out of the world. This combination, this God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, is a mystery. Paul calls it a mystery. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, he said. And, and I wanted to address something this morning about that, because I've been uh, talking uh, with some others about some issues this great mystery that God, the Lord Jesus Christ, knows all things as far as the future is concerned, and yet as man can say, I don't know when, what's going to happen in the future. It is a mystery, and yet it's found in the Word of God. And the reason I bring it up this morning is to say this. We may not be able to explain it to the full satisfaction of those who believe that everything about God should be able to be comprehended by the carnal mind. Okay? There are those out there that say, if you can't explain this to me, then I don't believe it. Well, fine. Don't believe it. Because I can't explain it. 
I can't explain how God and man can be one undivided person where he can say, I'm tired and need to rest, and at the same time, in the same event, say, I know something about what's in your heart. I know that you're not married. I'm talking about John chapter 4. If we believe the word of God, we must believe this truth. Jesus Christ is both fully man and fully God at the same time in one person, unable to be divided. That's the truth of the scriptures. One of the great errors that many Christians make is to explain, try to explain things that cannot be explained to the carnal and finite minds of mankind. I think it's a great error. We often waste time and energy trying to explain what God simply states as true without any explanation. If all we had of the scripture was one verse, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That was all we had, one verse. There would be those that say, well, who? explain to me this God. Well, God didn't explain, did he? He just simply declared God created the heavens and the earth. He simply made a declaration without explaining. Now, from Genesis 1 to the end of the chapter, we have a lot of information about God. But all, if all we had was that one verse, it would be enough for us to know God exists and he created us. Well, how can you explain that? God didn't explain it. He simply declared it. There are many things that God has kept hidden from his creation. Many things about himself. God does not require us to explain that which he has kept hidden. He does not. Our duty is to set forth the things of God as plainly that are plainly revealed. Not try to explain the great mysteries of God to those whose carnal curiosity can never be sufficiently satisfied. Just simply say, this is what the Word of God says. Our text reveals that the one who had previously said, I don't know anything about the future, now says, the hour has come. He knows the time of his death, his burial, his resurrection had come. It was right before him. That which had been planned from eternity was now come in time. That which had been known to God from before the foundations of the world is now being fulfilled before their very eyes in only a few more days. Jesus knew that his hour was come and that he should depart out of this world unto the Father. The word that, did you catch that? Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, the word that implies a certainty of divine decree. This is what is going to happen. This is certain to develop before us. This is what is going to take place. 
His hour was come that he should depart out of this world onto the Father. The word depart has the idea of moving from one location to another or from one realm to another. And what Jesus Christ is saying very plainly here, and he says it again in verse 3, is that the hour is come when all the events are going to lead up to me leaving this earth and returning to my Father. All that is going to be happening in the next day or so is going to culminate in me returning to my Father. This has been planned from before the foundations of the world. His hour was come. The phrase, His hour, in this verse, is a reference to his, the time of His burial, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, because it includes returning to the Father. So, the time has come that these things will, must take place. So I want to open this up for us this morning. This hour, this time frame that he is speaking of in this chapter has been planned from before the foundation of the world. In Revelation 13 and verse 8, we read, And all that dwell on the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain, from the foundation of the world. Christ viewed as a lamb slain before God created the heavens and the earth. This is in the mind and heart of God before the foundations of the world. Peter addresses it. God requires out of everything that is stated that at least two or three witness, right? Be state for So I'm going to give at least two texts for everything that I'm dealing with this morning. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 18. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 18 through 20. For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things. as silver and gold. From your vain conversation. Your vain or useless life. Received by the tradition of your fathers. That tradition that you received was vain. Paul, uh, Peter calls it. Instead, he says, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. And then adds, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world. Jesus Christ, this lamb who's shed his blood so that you might be redeemed, was foreordained to do so before the foundation of the world. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 20. Before God created the heavens and the earth, Jesus Christ was viewed as a lamb slain on behalf of his people. This hour, or this time, had been prophesied at his birth. Matthew 1 and verse 21. Matthew 1, 21. The angel speaking to Joseph and she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. This is the purpose. This is what is his driving purpose. He's going to save his people from their sins. This is prior to his birth. This is at his conception. Luke chapter 2, verse 10 and 11, And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings, speaking to the shepherds that are in the field to go to the, uh, to the manger where Jesus is. Speaking to them, says, 
I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. There it is, uh, brethren, speaking to Jewish shepherds about this gospel message being for all people. And yet they missed it. They still miss it today. Being shall be to all people, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. As the angels announced to the shepherd that God has sent His only begotten Son to save them. A Savior has been born. Thirty years later at the River Jordan, John the Baptist has the privilege of fulfilling all righteousness in baptizing the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he came up out of the water, the heavens opened, and the Father spoke, This is my beloved Son, whom I am well pleased. And when John said that, saw that, the very next day, as the crowd gathered, speaking of Christ, he says to them, Behold the Lamb of God, who shall take away the sin of the world. At his baptism, John testifies, This is his purpose. This hour, this time, plainly spoken, is plainly spoken by our Lord to His disciples. In the early part of His ministry in Matthew chapter 16, in verse 21, Matthew 16, 21, He says, From that time forth began Jesus to show unto His disciples how that He must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the th- again, the third day. He began to explain to them, this is coming. This, is, this hour is coming. This time frame is coming. Toward the end of his ministry in Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 through 19, Matthew 20, 17 through 19, again Jesus gathers his disciples. Jesus going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples apart, separated them in the way, and said unto them, verse 18, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be betrayed unto the chief priest and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death. Verse 19, and, and, shall, be, and shall deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify him, and the third day he shall rise again. During his earthly ministry, he spoke of this hour coming. Next, this hour or time was a topic of discussion on the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember when he took three of his disciples and went up to the Mount, and he was transformed before them. And Moses and Elijah appeared. Luke chapter 9, verse 30 and 31. These words are said, And behold, there talked two men, which were Moses and Elias who appeared in glory and spake of his decease, which he should accomplish in Jerusalem. Spake of the time when he would die. Moses spoke of the coming death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Elijah spoke of the coming death of the Lord Jesus Christ. The hour, this hour spoken of, was fulfilled in the history of mankind at the exact time that God determined that it should be fulfilled. Paul writes to the churches of Galatia, and in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 and 5, says, But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son, 
made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. From the time that Adam had fallen into sin, several thousand years has transpired of human history. But in the fullness of time, in the history of mankind, at the moment that God determined he should send his son. For those of you who would try to think through beyond the scriptures, you'd say, why didn't he send his son and take care of the things with Adam? Why didn't he send his son and take care of the things after the flood with Noah? Why didn't he send his son and take care of the things when Israel entered into, into Cana? Stop questioning the wisdom of God, brethren. <laughs> he makes no mistake and does all things well. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. In the 4,000 years or so of mankind's history was complete. The Son of God arrives with the purpose, what? To redeem them that were under the curse of the law. Our God, the one revealed in the scriptures, the one revealed to our hearts, is, has supreme control over all the events of all the history of mankind. He is the one of which Paul says, who works all things to, after the counsel of his own will. At the exact moment, in the history of mankind, God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to be born of a woman under the law in order that He might redeem those that belonged unto our God. His hour would result in the salvation of His own sheep. We have already looked at this in the book of John chapter 10, but if you want to go back there with me, we'll be look at John chapter 10 again in some verses, not all of them. Beginning in verse 11, our Lord says in John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. My purpose in coming is to give my life for the sheep. Verse 14 I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and am known of mine. As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 16. And other sheep I have, speaking of Gentiles, we've already looked at this, which are not of this fold, speaking of the Jews, them also I must bring. There is no question here that he will accomplish this and they shall hear my voice. It's going to happen. And there shall be one fold, one people of God and one shepherd. And this accomplished because the shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 17. Therefore doth my father love me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No man taketh it from me. Remember when we looked at this. But I lay it down in myself. And we spoke of those, that time at Calvary when the Roman soldiers were forcing the hands and arms and the legs of the, of the, of the two uh, uh, criminals and to the cross as they had to force them down as they resisted. And as the Son of God came, no man is forcing him to the cross. No man is compelling him to lay down and put his life 
on the line, as it were. No man is coercing him. I have I come to this point in, in my life because this hour, my hour, has come. There is no resistance in the mind and heart of Christ. There is this struggle of, can, is there another way? I don't want to be forsaken of God. There is this struggle, but no resistance. And he says, I lay it down to myself. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it again. I have this authority given me by, the, by my Father. But I as God have this authority. This commandment have I received of my Father. Verse 27. My sheep hear my voice. And I know them and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life. And they shall never perish. I lay down my life for them. I take it up again for them. And I give it to them. And they shall never perish. This hour. His hour is come. Jesus knew. That his hour was come. That he should depart out of the world. Unto the Father. This truth becomes his theme in the next day or so before him in, as John opens up. In verse 3, he says again, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he was come from God and went to God. Jesus knowing this. In chapter 16, he will say, I came forth from the Father, verse 28. John 16, 28. I came forth from the Father and then come into the world. Again, I leave the world and go to the Father. And in John 17, in his high priestly intercessory prayer, our Lord says in verse 4 to his Father, I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. Verse 5. And now, O Father... Glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. I have glorified you in my life and in my work. And now, as he's facing the cross, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane in chapter 17. I, I understand at this point. He's, in, he's praying. If I've done what you've asked me to do, I'm going to do what you've asked me to do. Now I'm asking you to glorify me and bring me back into your presence. He says in verse 11 of John 17, And now I am no more in this world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee. It will be a few days before that is fulfilled, but I am coming to you. And in verse 13, he says, And now, I'm sorry, yeah, verse 13 of John 17, And now come I to thee. The Apostle Paul summarizes our Lord's ministry in Hebrews chapter 12. In Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2, he uses these words. Hebrews 12, 2. Listen to them. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down on the right hand of God. Paul takes... 
the cross and the ascension where he sits on the right hand of God. He puts them together in one statement concerning Jesus Christ. Looking unto Jesus, the one who endured the cross. That's what the hour is about. But it's not just about that. It's about his death, yes. It's about his burial, yes. It's about his resurrection, yes. But it is also about his ascension and his place at the right hand of the Father on his throne. All these things are the fulfillment of that phrase, Jesus knew that his hour was come. And then the text says, Having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. Having loved his own which were in the world, John 13 and verse 1. The phrase his own is used three ways in the Gospels. It is used in reference to the nation of Israel. We've already looked at it many, many months ago. Used in reference to the Jewish people. John 1 verse 11. He came unto his own. And his own received him not. It's talking about the physical nation, the Jewish people. He came unto his own. They were his people. He was Jewish. He came to them. But they did not receive him. It is also used in reference to his disciples, particularly the eleven. And that's what I believe John 13.1 is referring to, specifically. Look in John 13.1 again. He... he uh, he, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And the supper being ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, and that he was come from the Father and went to, the, went to God, come from God and went to God, he rises from supper, laid, his garments, laid aside his garments, he took a towel, and girded him, took aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet his own. The context, I believe, of verse 1 is the disciples. Okay? This is also borne out in, in um, John 17. I have manifested, John 17, 6, I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou hast given me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and I have kept thy word. John 17, 6. There is a third way his own is used in the scriptures. It is used in reference to his elect. Both Jew and Gentiles loved from before the foundation of the world. We see this in Luke chapter 18 and verse 7. Luke 7, chapter 18, verse 7. And shall not God avenge his own elect, which cry day and night unto him, though he bear long with them? Luke 18, verse 7. We saw it also in John chapter 10. Not his own elect, but his own sheep. John 10, verse 3. To him the porter openeth. And the sheep hear his voice, and he calleth his own sheep by name, and leadeth them out. Having loved his own, he loved them unto the end. What is meant by the word end here? 
If you look at the word, you'll find that this is one of those Greek words which may be interpreted in a variety of ways, and at least two, with the context making the determination. In both Greek and English, the word end refers to a time when things are finished, when things are culminated. And in fact, this word that is translated into the English word end is used that way. Go with me to Romans, uh, Romans 10, verse 3 and 4. Romans 10, verse 3 and 4. Paul, speaking of the Jews, says, For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, speaking of the Jews, and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end. There's our word. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. That's, our, that's the same exact word. So in this text, our Lord Jesus Christ is said to have put an end to the law as a means of righteousness. His finished work at Calvary forever ended any hopes that any sinner may obtain a righteousness that God will accept on the basis of the law or on the basis of works. The law of Moses says, if you do this, you shall live. They could not do it. They were never able to do it, and so they could not earn a righteousness. But they, being ignorant of the righteousness of God, went about to try to do that. Paul argues here in Romans 10. Instead, Jesus Christ says, I have done everything. I have done everything necessary for your salvation. Come to me and live. This do and live, even though you cannot Come to me and live, because I have done it all for you. That's what Paul is talking about. He is the end of it. He has finished it. He has culminated the law as a means of righteousness acceptable to God. But what about John 13, 1? Having loved his own, he loved them unto the end. It's the same word that's used to have a finish point. Let me just make a statement, then I'm going to back it up. The word end in John 13, 1, refers to that that is never finished. Refers to that that does not culminate at some point. Follow me. Same word that is used as a point when something is finished is used here in a different way. The Word of God is not saying, having loved His own while He was on earth, He loved them unto the end of His earthly ministry, and then went back to the Father. That's not what is being said here, okay? That's not what is being said. Instead, in the Scriptures, in fact, in the writings of John, this same word that means to have a finish is used to mean not to have a finish. Same word. Go with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 8. John wrote this gospel, and he wrote his epistles, and then he wrote the book of the Revelation. Same author, using the same Greek word. 
Revelation chapter 1, verse 8, the scriptures record Jesus speaking, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the what? The ending. Same word. Same word. Used in reference to Jesus Christ, who is the eternal everlasting God, everlasting eternal God. I am the ending. Saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. Not only once does John use it, but he uses it a second time in the book of Revelation. Revelation 21 and verse 6. Revelation 21 and verse 6. And this time tied to the gospel message. Revelation 21 verse 6. He said unto me, I am, it is done. And then I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. The English word end there. Same Greek word and same English word as translated in John 13, verse 1. I am the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. The one who is the end gives the water of life freely. He loved them unto the end means that he loved them and will continue to love them into eternity. In eternity past, this, the only language we have is what we have, right? And so to express things in the scriptures, we have to say things that aren't, there is no past or present with, or future with eternity. But I'm going to use the term in eternity past. Before the foundations of the world, when there was no time and there was no matter, but God existed in complete harmony with himself. We read in the scripture that he loved his own. Jeremiah 31.3, Jeremiah 31.3, The Lord hath appeared of old unto me, saying, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. I have loved thee with an everlasting love, one that has no end in that direction. And therefore, I have, with loving kindness, drawn thee now in time. Let me read what John Gill has to say about this. It's a little lengthy. I hope not to stumble over the words. I could not say it better. And so I wanted to express it through his words. John Gill on Jeremiah 31.3 I have loved thee, quoting Jer Jeremiah. I, who am the great God, the creator of the ends of the earth, the king of kings and lord of lords, a God of infinite purity and holiness, do whatever I please in heaven and in earth, and am the Lord that changes not, have loved not only now and shall hereafter, but have loved not for some time past only, but from all eternity with the same love, with an everlasting love, a love from everlasting which does not commence in time with faith or repentance and or a new obedience, these being the fruits and effects of it, but was from all eternity, as appears from the eternal choice of the persons loved in Christ, and from the everlasting covenant made with them in him from the constitution and the setting up of Christ as their mediator from everlasting. 
and from the security of their persons and grace in him before the world began and, and, and this love will endure to everlasting without any variation or change. Nothing can separate from it. There's a lot of doctrine in that paragraph. And I shortened it down actually. But that's what it is. From everlasting to everlasting I have unchangeably loved you. I have unchangeably loved you. The everlasting love sp spoken of in Jeremiah 31, 3 is the same love that our Lord loves His own to the end. The same person who spoke to Jeremiah and said, I have loved thee with an everlasting love, now in John 13, 1 says, having loved His own, He loved them unto the end. It is the same one speaking. And in other verses, for instance, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. God, having so loved the world, having, God having set His affection on both Jew and Gentile, not Jews alone, but Jew and Gentile, having loved them, sent His Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And again John writes, 1 John 4 and verse 19, we love Him because He first loved us. When did God first love us? Because here in the English, again, we have a word that implies that it had a beginning. We love Him because He first loved us. But again, to answer the question, when did God first love us? Everything relating to God is related to eternity. In fact, we can say that since God had no beginning... Everything related to God in relation to His people had no beginning. Thus, His love for His own had no beginning. And since God has no end, His love for His own has no end. This is also true of all that our Lord has promised us. All that He has promised His people, every good gift that has come down and will come down from the Father of, of lights, that comes to us is from everlasting to everlasting. David says in Psalm 103, 17, Psalm 103, 17, but the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9 says, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purposes and grace, which was given us in Christ before the world began. Having loved his own, he loved them to the end. He loved his own from the beginning to the end of his earthly ministry. That is a true statement, but it fits within the whole context of a greater statement. Like the disciples of old, we experience the love of God during our lifetime. We're not born knowing that God loves us and has loved us from the 
before the foundation of the world. We, we are not born knowing God. We're not born knowing Jesus Christ. We're born sinners, blinded and deaf and to the things of God. And we, we don't understand Him and we don't seeking after Him. And we're not righteous and not doing any good. That's the way we're born. And we live our life and then one day we discover there is a God who has loved me from before the foundations of the world. And something happens in the heart that changes us. God loving me God having set his love on me, it cannot be true. It cannot be. And perhaps others that are better than me, but not me. No, it has nothing to do with you or where you have been or what you have done. It has everything to do with God. And we be, begin to understand that his love led him to send his son to this earth his only begotten Son, the Son of His love, so that He might be a substitute for us and a sacrifice for our sins that would be acceptable to this God. And that sacrificial death, which was with His burial and with His resurrection, gives hope in our heart that God also loves us and forgive us of our sins. We look at what Christ did at Calvary's cross and, and we begin to understand that He died for sinners. He was buried for them. He rose from them. He ascended to heaven so He could pray for them. And we begin to wonder, could it be for me? And as I stumbled through the New Testament trying to read, and I began to see that God would say, Thy sins are forgiven. And then again He would say to this one, Thy sins are forgiven. The thought came to my mind, perhaps me. And so I asked, Lord, would you, would, would you forgive me? And He did. And we see what God did on behalf of sinners. This great love that God had for sinners. That he, would, that he would be moved to send His own Son so that they would come to Him and be restored and be saved. and re, Their sins removed and they would be justified and then glorified. And the Father would have before Him the saints that He had chosen from before the foundations of the world. And we begin to see what Christ did did for sinners. And it moves our hearts. And maybe there's hope for me. Despite the pit that I've dug with my own hands and the chains that I've forged with my own hands. Perhaps for me, He would save me. And then something in our heart says, ask, seek, Venture on him, see for yourself. And we see the promises of the scripture. He that believeth on me shall never perish but have everlasting life. And we think, can it be true? And we come... As he said, come to me and I will not cast you out. And we find out that it's true. That when we come, he won't cast us out. 
And we, to some degree, never get over that. How could it be that I could be in his heart from all eternity? Me. His love having no beginning and having no end does something in our heart. From eternity past to eternity future, his own are secure. God does not change. He stays the same. So, this morning, do you see how God has loved sinners? The, the testimony of scriptures, the, the people that he spoke to directly when he was on this earth and said to them, your sins are forgiven. Can you, can you see that he has loved sinners? Do you see the love of God at the cross? Yes, the justice of God was there. Yes, I understand there's much that took place there. But do you see in the cross the love that God has for sinners? Do you see in that love that it is possible that God loves you? Is there something in that that says in your heart, perhaps me? Do you see in that sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ on Calvary, His great love for sinners? Does it cause you to say, perhaps I was wrong, perhaps, uh, perhaps He does love sinners? Yes, hell is real, and yes, the judgment of God is real, but perhaps at Calvary, what I can see is that he genuinely loves sinners. If so, if you can see that, if something about that has touched your heart, then come to him. Ask him where you're at, sitting right where you're at. He has said, come unto me, all you that labor and heavy laden, I will give you rest. I will freely love you. I will freely forgive you. There is nothing required. Come without money. Come without works. Come empty-handed. I am able to save to the uttermost all who come to God through him, through me. You can't add anything. You can't do anything. But I have already done it for you. Come. Having loved his own, he loved him to the end. Let's pray.